We are starting today, though, with the news that was announced this morning having to do with masks in schools. And today I am extending the mask, uh, the PHO masking order in schools to cover all students and staff in K-12 across the province. This order will be in place for the remainder of this school term, additional layer to help reduce risk of transmission in classrooms and schools. That was Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking earlier today. Let's bring on Matt Westfall, the president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Matt, thanks so much for being with us. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. What's your response to the announcement that there will be a provincial-wide mask mandate for K-12? I'm glad that this order has been expanded across the province rather than going from district to district. I mean, the best time to put this in place would have been at the start of the school year, but the next best time is now. So I'm glad the the public health officer has done that. Uh, And it seems like it was in response to not only teachers and parents and others calling for this, but school districts, Surrey being one of them, following uh, after Vancouver did this, it looked like school districts were going to go ahead and do this anyway. Yes, and really for the past year, uh, teachers unions have been calling on school districts to exceed the minimums that the PHO has set because we didn't think they were going far enough. And we, we were telling school districts, look, you do what you need to do to keep students and staff safe. So we're happy that school districts were not just waiting for this, but took the lead in doing it. Uh, And Dr. Bonnie Henry talked about this earlier, saying this is one measure, that there are other measures as well that need to be in place as far as keeping uh, students safe, keeping teachers safe, families safe. Uh, Are there still gaps that you see as far as those safety measures? Uh, Well, one potential gap is in ventilation. Uh, because we're still waiting for information in my district about what specifically what ventilation work has been done over the summer. So for every classroom, what is the status of that? That's not something we know. Another thing is that it's been very concerning that there have been some large assemblies held, like of several hundred students, which doesn't violate the health order if you're in a large gym, for example, but really does not seem like a prudent thing to do. And so if there were large assemblies being held, would that be a scenario, and obviously this will change come Monday, but would that be a scenario where different grades were there and then the kids grade four and up were masked, but there would also be a lot of students without masks? Uh, Potentially, yes. Uh, I mean, the ones I heard about were in secondary schools where they may have had the whole, all, all the grade eights together in the gym. And those students would have been masked unless they had some sort of exemption. But even so, in, any gathering that large just doesn't seem like a good idea. Is it up to, like you said, it doesn't break the provincial health orders that are in place or the restrictions that are in place right now. So would it be up to the specific individual schools then on whether or not they want to hold assemblies? Uh, yes, it would be, unless the school district were to make, provide some directive to school administrators. Otherwise, school, from school to school, it can vary. Uh, so do you think there needs to be more guidance on that front when it comes to having large gatherings? I, I think there has to be. Uh, that, that's something we've talked about with the senior management in our school district. And when it comes to having in-person meetings, we've been saying, let's take it slowly. Just because you could gather all the staff together physically for a meeting, maybe we should have a virtual meeting right now because we know we can do that. Let's take it slowly and see how things unfold this, this year. Uh, do you anticipate any issues as far as this mask mandate? Are there people that you've heard from or, or that are opposed to it? Uh, 
I expect that there will be. I, I've heard from parents who are opposed to masks in schools. I've heard some from some teachers of younger students who have concerns about the educational implications of this or maybe a comfort level with ha- having to physically help students put masks on if they aren't familiar. It's going to take time if, if w- because in some kindergarten classes, the students are already doing it. The teachers have managed to you know, convince everyone to get on board. In other ones, they have not. And it's, we have to be patient with that because it is going to be an adjustment. And how does it work as far as exemptions? Is it enough if a student or, say, the parents are opposed to it? If a student says, no, I'm not going to wear a mask, I'm uh, for whatever reason I can't, does a teacher leave it there? Or what happens in a scenario like that? Those are challenging situations, and different things happen in different parts of the province. In some school districts, I've been told, uh, they just say, well, there's nothing we can do. In other ones, and certainly in our district, our view is that really administration needs to have a talk with those families because in some cases it's absolutely legitimate that the child can't wear a mask. In other ones, if it's just a preference, then that's really not complying with the health order. And then, so I think school administrators who have done a lot in this pandemic, that I think they play a key role in that. Right, because that would be, I would imagine, an uncomfortable situation as well, even trying to figure out that somebody has a legitimate exemption and somebody else maybe just doesn't want to wear it. Yes, it, it really is. And uh, because... If someone, for example, says, well, my child is anxious, they can't wear a mask. Uh, we, we probably have to take their word for that. I mean, because I certainly am not going to minimize the impact of anxiety it can have. Uh, but you also hear that some parents are saying, oh, it's, here's how, if you don't want your child to wear a mask, here's how you do it. So it, it's, gonna, it's not going to be an easy thing, I think. There's, there will be conflict over that and some resistance to this move. On the other side of that, too, I've also seen some children who actually like it. They like the fact of getting the different kinds of fabrics and the different types of masks. Is it also possible that it could be, I would say, perhaps not going so far as to saying it's cool to wear a mask, but it, that everyone's doing it, that people, that, that kids are, are pretty adaptable that way and, and would, would think of it as just another part of school? I think so. I mean, kids can adapt to all kinds of things. So, and I think that's the right approach, the way you talk about it. Let's make it fun. Uh, let's make it something which is we're doing for each other and doesn't have to be a big burden. And even some students who maybe can't wear it all day, but maybe when they're moving around, they can. And then at their desks, they don't. Like, so there's, there's some room for middle ground there as well. How are things going then as well? I know there's been a lot of talk about vaccinations. Obviously, the children under the age of 12 can't get vaccinated at this point. But how are things going as far as teacher and vaccination levels? It's not mandatory, but is there, do you think, a a lot of uh, people, teachers that are getting fully vaccinated? I think I think there are. Uh, that's something the BCTF is doing a survey and on a variety of health and safety things. I don't have good data on that. I do know that in Surrey, when teachers and other staff were prioritized to get vaccine, vaccinated early, there are large lineups. There is a, a very big uptake of that. It could be that in other parts of the province it, where the community level of vaccination is lower, it wouldn't be surprising if the level is lower also among education staff. Do you think there's any appetite to bring in a mandatory vaccine policy like there is for, say, long-term healthcare workers and healthcare workers to have that as well for teachers? Uh, I mean, so far, uh, Dr. Henry has not indicated any intention to go there beyond what for long-term, long-term care, but I think we'll have to see how things unfold. Uh, it, it may be that it could get there, and, and we've said we would not be opposed to that. All right, Matt Westfall, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much. Good to talk with you.
Thank you very much. All right, we are shifting gears a little bit here and talking about a protest that appears to be escalating on the Wet'suwet'en territory and two people have actually been arrested and this has to do with the Coastal Gas Link project. And joining us now is Ellis Ross. Ellis Ross is the MLA for Skeena, also running in the BC Liberal leadership race. Ellis Ross, thanks so much for being with us. Glad to be here, Joe. Thank you very much. Uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that these protests are do seem to be escalating? We have seen a couple of arrests made on that territory. You know, I've warned political leaders and outside groups that this day would come if they didn't stop manipulating First Nations leaders and, more importantly, stop ignoring democratically elected chief and councils. Stop villainizing them because to play politics with a group of people some of the most disadvantaged in Canada at a time when we could actually see light in the tunnel, it's shameful. It's shameful all across the board, no matter what kind of a picture you describe. Uh, this has been a project, uh, people are likely remembering the back and forth between elected chiefs and hereditary chiefs. And I think there was some thought process or, or understanding that that had been resolved, but it sounds like that has not been. No, no. The only thing that's been resolved is that... Uh, the B.C. government actually gave at a minimum that we know about $7 million to this group without really consulting their community, without consulting their elected chief and council, without even consulting the matriarchs of that hereditary leadership who got stripped of their titles by their male counterparts, and nobody said a word, much less both levels of government. I, I understand you're calling or asking for the protesters to stand down at this point. It's somewhat similar, I think, although of course there are differences, but somewhat similar to what we're seeing in Ferry Creek uh, with Indigenous people. They're also asking protesters to, to stand down and to leave the area. Have you had any response to that request? No, and I've been saying it for the last 15 years. Because especially on Truth and Reconciliation Day, when you think about the aftermath of the Indian Act, for example, or residential schools. Aboriginals have been suffering for the last 50 years with high rates of suicide, unemployment, the violence of poverty, going to prison, their kids going to school. Now, a lot of First Nations have resolved this with a simple matter of engaging the economy and getting their people jobs. These protesters have no interest or care about these First Nations people in general. It's just like the BCNDP. They're just using them for their own political purposes. And that, that, that's a shameful part of all of this. Uh, I know that you've been a proponent of the the Coastal Gas Link project and and the fact that it does have uh, supporters. People have signed on. Uh, s- several groups have signed on to be part of this project. Uh, why do you support the project? Just like every other First Nation that signed on from Prince George to Kinemad, including the Wet'suwet'en people themselves, including bands down channel like uh, the Gitgat people outside of Hartley Bay. It's because it offers a solution to a problem that nobody else can fix. Both levels of government haven't been able to fix the Aboriginal issues in Canada. The only, the only people that can really fix the, the, the problems we're facing are Aboriginals themselves, the communities, their leadership. And we've been doing a good job for the last 15 years, and now it's all for naught. We're, we're all going backwards. It just, it, it, it just tears me apart when I think about all the progress we've made, and now we're going to turn our back on all of it. Uh, do you think it's it's past the point of return, or if the protesters were to stand down, if we did see an end to this, uh, can, can this still be salvaged? I don't think there will be anybody standing down right now, because at the end of the day, nobody's talking about Aboriginal issues, like the, the social issues. And 
basically elected chiefly councils have been ignored for so long, nobody even knows what an elected chief councillor is. I mean, a democratically elected chief and council, elected by their own people, to look at their own issues and hopefully solve them. Nobody cares about that. They just care about the, the, the grand headlines, the sensationalism, you know, and, and the mistruths that are actually going out there. But nobody's really talking about why these First Nations leaders did in the first place. And you know what? I've been trying to talk against this for the last 15 years. And I basically predicted this is what it become. And you know what the thing about it? First Columbians, you are actually you're actually working against yourself because when you talk about all those bridges you need, all those highways, all those new hospitals, all those new uh, schools, if, if that doesn't come from the taxpayer, it's got to come from someplace else. It's got to come from these types of projects. And so really, by shutting down the economy across the board, like what we're seeing right now, you're actually saying yes to higher taxes, and you're saying yes to cutting more programs to pay for the deficits that both levels of government are incurring. Uh, we only have about a minute left. What else do you do, or what do you do next? Like you said, you don't see the protesters going anywhere. What what uh, what will or what could happen next? Um, I think it'll ramp up. Uh, even though there's leaders uh, all across BC, Aboriginal leaders, that say, look, let us deal with our own issues. You know, it's it's it's. When you talk about Ferry Creek, for example, it's the First Nations down at Ferry Creek that are doing the logging. When you talk about the protests on the, the LNG uh, Canada pipeline, that, those are First Nations leaders that actually signed those agreements and actually took benefits already. They accepted jobs and contracts, revenues. They've already accepted the $7 million uh, to, in their recent round of negotiations with the provincial government. And, and by the way, British Columbians, you better understand what the BC government is doing on your behalf because they're negotiating title. One of the most controversial, one of the most expensive, complicated issues that are facing British Columbians today. If you don't understand the basic of this, uh, you have no idea where your government could head. This could get worse before it gets better. All right. Well, let's talk about that again uh, another day for sure. But we're completely out of time today. Ellis Ross, I thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, as you just heard in the news, some sad news to report today, learning the three-term mayor of Vancouver, Philip Owen, passed away last night at age 88. His family has issued a statement saying that he died and passed away peacefully from complications related to Parkinson's disease. He was the mayor of Vancouver from 1993 to 2002 and left a pretty big legacy, to say the least. Joining me now to talk a bit more about that is Francis Bula, a reporter with the Globe and Mail. Francis, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, hi, Joe. When you heard this, the news that Philip Owen had passed away, what kind of memories and stories came into your mind? Oh, so many. I mean, he was the mayor for the first 10 years I covered city councils and probably the one I knew the best and, and had the most access to. And uh, just, uh, you know, long conversations with him and sort of watching him change from a quite a conservative mayor who didn't have much of a profile and people, you know, didn't think he was that dynamic into somebody who kind of was willing to take on his own party uh, to push for something uh, that he believed in, which was, uh, you know, a better approach to the downtown east side and uh, supervised injection sites. 
I, I first thought too as well the, the four pillars and I remember talking to him about the four pillars and he was so passionate about it and and at the time if I'm remembering correctly it did seem like it was quite groundbreaking um, I mean it it was just in the attention that he chose to focus on it I mean the downtown east side had been sort of ignored or just you know this is a garbage problem or something like that and he decided he really wanted to try and take a comprehensive approach. And so he came up with the four pillars strategy. There was a Vancouver agreement where the city, the province, and the federal government were working together to try to improve things. Um, You you know, I I described him in an early profile of of him as someone who you just knew always cleaned his gutters and rotated his tires, and he hated disorder. And uh, I think for him, uh, you know, the um, seeing the downtown east side the way it was uh, bothered him, and not just the streets or whatever, but also people's lives. Uh, I remember him talking about it too and saying he actually gave a timeline, quite a, shri- a short timeline, saying he was going to fix it and he was going to make it so you could go, it would be six months down the road, you would go to the downtown east side and they were going to fix it, they were, they were going to help people and it would no longer look the way that it did and obviously that didn't happen. Uh, but do you think that is kind of his legacy or part of his legacy will be the four pillars and his work in that, in that area? I mean, absolutely, for sure. I mean, he, he, uh, there are other legacies, um, not as visible to a lot of people. I mean, he, you know, people at City Hall really loved working under him. They felt like he was a good manager. Uh, um, I think people feel like in his era, there was a sense of order to the city and that things were getting taken care of. You know, he was cleaning everyone's gutters, not just his (laughs) own. Um, But, you know, definitely um, the four pillars approach and the supervised injection site, I mean, it was the first in North America. And, um, you know, it did open under Larry Campbell, the next mayor, but it was really Philip Owen who uh, paved the way to that. And not, um, you know, it wasn't like that from the beginning. As I say, when he started out, he was a bit of a more of a conservative mayor who was taking more of a law and order approach. And he, he really changed his mind about the downtown east side and about the injection site. He also seemed to, and I, and I remember, and maybe I'm, I'm roman- romanticizing it a little bit, he seemed uh, accessible. I remember you, you calling the mayor, calling the mayor's office, getting him to comment on things. It seemed like he was somebody who, he's a busy guy, he was running the city, but he would also take time to talk to people. I mean, it was a time when the all of City Hall was more accessible. Like, do you remember? We would just wander around. I used to take, like, the private mayor's elevator up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you'd get uh, City Hall reports with the name of the person who wrote it and their phone number, and you could just call them up. So everyone was a bit more accessible. Um, I think he was a little wary of the media at times, but for sure he he was. I mean, as I say, I feel like he's the one I got to know the best. Um, uh, others have been much more surrounded by kind of a thicket of staff and media relations and various other things. Uh, did you cover when there was some controversy over his his take on the Robert Pickton investigation and he he uh, made some comments about uh, and blaming almost to the police department for for botching it or for making mistakes in that? I actually didn't and I you know it, it, I'm being reminded of it today like cuz some people are bringing that up. Um 
I didn't, but he, he if he was the chair of the police board, and so, you know, there he would have had some kind of involvement in that. Um, uh, but I don't think I covered that directly. Uh, do you remember any specific interviews or interactions with him, that the ones that stick out in your mind? Um... Yeah, I you know, there's not a, a, a one particular sit down. It was sort of an ongoing thing. Um, uh, and um, we did get to, you know, a very informal stage uh, towards the end. He could get really angry, though, too. You know, um, he would get very upset if he thought someone had criticized him unfairly. And that was a part a side that people didn't always see. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I just remember re- some really great conversations, just sort of him talking about his take on the city or, you know, admiration for his grandfather, who was the uh, supervisor at Ocala Prison, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, back in the day. Uh, and, um you know, just uh, his outrage if he felt that something wasn't being done properly. Which isn't such a, a bad quality in uh, the mayor of a major city. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, no. I mean, I, a lot of people appreciate it. And you're seeing a, a lot of comments on social media and various other places these days about he was the last great mayor, the last best mayor. And I think some people do, uh, well, a lot of people really do miss uh, having this person that you felt like, you know, he... He brought in drug policy, cared about the downtown east side, but he also just cared about the whole city. I mean, he would literally drive around the city looking to see if everything was running <laughs> properly uh, in a way that I've, I've never really observed uh, before, uh, you know, since then. Um, he, he, you really had the sense that he cared, and uh, Chris Owen, his son, was reminding me this morning that he ran for office like five or six or seven times before he got elected because he just really had this desire to serve the city. Uh, And there was a service aspect to what he did uh, that you don't get with, uh, you know, all politicians, all mayors. I mean, there are others, but uh, it really stood out with him. And I, I think that's what people appreciated. I, I think so, too. And I didn't realize, too, when I was doing some reading on his background today, I didn't realize that he had actually started as a park board commissioner before mm. he went to council and then and then to After his three losing terms. a few times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he couldn't even get elected as park board commissioner originally. And, you know, um, uh, it's kind of a fluke how he became mayor because the NPA did a poll after Gordon Campbell left and um, George Pule was better known but more disliked. He had more negatives because, you know, he's a strong personality. And people didn't know Philip Owen as much, but they had a much more favorable view of him. So the NPA picked him. Um, I think thinking of him as a bit of a caretaker mayor, and then he just, he, he, he became a different person. It was really interesting to watch uh, from the outside. And uh, was it pr- uh, came after Gordon Campbell, and then went. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Philip Owen, and then Larry Campbell, right? That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and what are your thoughts on when you look at the differences between those mayors? Oh, I mean, incredibly different. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, Larry was flamboyant and was willing to drive a particular campaign through. Didn't know the workings of the city that well. I used to, you know, even after 
you know, three years in office, he didn't know some kind of basic things, but he knew how to do politics. He knew how to make deals and all the rest of it. Something that Philip uh, wasn't always as good at. He is, so, Philip was someone who really liked to study an issue for a long time and get familiar with it, and then he'd get more confident about pronouncing on it. So quite a difference with Larry Campbell, uh, who kind of, you know, had strong opinions about everything five minutes after hearing about them. So, um, uh, and then, you know, again, very different from Gregor Robertson, who came in, had a very decided vision what he wanted to do, wasn't very chatty, wasn't very communicative with people, came in with a super strong team, and it was just like, this is what we were elected to do, we're doing this, we're driving this through, uh, no matter what. Uh, And Philip never had a big vision like that when he ran for mayor. He ran on, I'm going to keep the city running properly. Uh, And it was really only in his final term that the four pillars and um, the injection site um, became a, a big priority for him. Well, it's uh, so many, like you said, so many uh, memories flooding social media and people paying their respects uh, after learning mm-hmm. that, that he I passed think away. He, yeah, and, and um, they, he was always very accessible to people and gracious with them. So I'm sure there's just so many people who have nice memories of him. And I understand the last four days when he was in hospice, it was just a nonstop stream of people um, because he had connections through the, throughout the whole community. All right. Well, Francis, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much. Appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah. Well, as you know, it was announced earlier today, the mask mandate is now going to be in place starting Monday for all K-12 students in BC schools, something that a lot of teachers, students, parents have been calling for. We'd already seen a couple of school districts go ahead with their own mask mandate. Now it will be provincial. Dr. Bonnie Henry announcing that earlier today. So let's talk to Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show, more about this. Jason, good afternoon to you. Well, good afternoon. What are your thoughts on this? Is this a move that will help protect people? Well, yes, obviously masks are going to be helping protect people because it's part of the ABCs, the airway, which you want to block, uh, your bubble, and and of course, contacts, right? You want to minimize those. Um, And of course, we haven't forgotten all of that. It's just that we are in a bit of a different realm. So the masks are definitely going to be able to help us. What I think the big issue, though, is that as we knew, uh, even back in April of this year, you know, the, the COVID cases in the school will be reflective of community transmission. And so the real big factor is not what's happening in the school, it's what's happening in the positivity rate outside of the school. And if you look at all the places across uh, the province right now, the majority of them have positivity rates that essentially put schools no longer into a reflection, but into an incubator status, which is why you want to get the masks in from all the grades or for all the grades. Hmm. So when you talk about, though, that it's kind of uh, so what we're seeing in the schools, because we are seeing an increase in exposures Mm -hmm. and infections. But wouldn't that be different from what we're seeing in the general public if we're talking about an 80 percent vaccination rate of people who are eligible compared to a big group in the schools that can't get vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, the vaccination status is also going to be incredibly important. If you don't have people who are vaccinated, you have to go with these non-pharmaceutical interventions like masking and distancing and cohorting, okay? But the big issue 
that I think people have been really arguing about is just simply, you know, should we have done this right from the beginning? Or is this something that we have eventually had no choice but to do? The latter is really the case when you look at the data based on, um, you know, all the different models. And unfortunately, you know, it's coming now at a point where we've just simply saying, well, we told you so, we told you so. I'm just glad that it's being done because right now we're in a critical point where those schools could potentially become incubators. How important is it, though, when we talk about the type of mask and whether it's a cotton mask or a, a double layer cotton mask, whether it's mm-hmm. a, a, an N95 that, that you can buy um, and, and, it's, and, and wearing it properly? So how do those things factor in? So when you're looking at any kind of protection for your face, barrier protection, you want to have a minimum of two layers. Uh, On my show, we actually talked to someone who was looking at old T-shirts, and they did just as well as uh, some uh, masks that you can buy in, in the store. So it's really more about making sure that you've got a minimum of two layers. Three is always better. And then those layers should be made of something that can attract water. So cotton, um, I mean, even silk. Uh, you definitely don't want to be doing something like flannel because that's just going to let things go right through. Um, When you have it on your face, you want to make sure that it's covering both your nose and your mouth and that there's a good seal around your cheeks. All of that is going to be able to help reduce the potential for your exposure down by about 95%. The good seal might be the big one because I've seen oftentimes seen people where it is a cloth mask, but nothing is sealed. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and this is something that we also see in, in healthcare in, in the old days. When SARS was around, one of the things that we noticed was the reason there were so many healthcare providers who unfortunately were coming down with SARS was because they were just not wearing their mask properly because they were trying to keep them loose. You got to make sure you got that seal around your cheeks and around the top uh, where your nose is. And, and if you don't, then you're going to have to start relying on being far enough from people so that the amount that you're exposed to is going to be minimized. Uh, because it, it is too, if we go back to the beginning of all of this, uh, when we first learned about mm-hmm. it, is it still wearing the mask protects others? Well, yeah, obviously wearing a mask protects others. But I mean, I've known from the very beginning that wearing a mask protects yourself. When Dr. Tam said that, uh, I, I was bouncing my head off the mm-hmm. wall going, oh, this is going to really come to hurt you later on. And it did. Um, the, the fact is, is that if you have a barrier protection both um, coming at you and coming out from you, then that's going to protect society and yourself. And if everybody's wearing a mask, um, it will actually bring down the potential for spread. And eventually that will actually bring down the cases. And you don't need to take it from a theoretical perspective anymore. We've actually seen it over the last 18 months. And you mentioned some of the other measures, uh, the distancing and and such. We just had an election where there was a lot of attention paid to the millions of dollars for the tiny wooden pencils so that everybody would have their own pencil. And then there were many reports, too, saying, well, actually, the chances of getting COVID from sharing a pencil, probably pretty, pretty low. So are we focused in the right area as to where we're most likely to get exposed? If you happen to be in a situation where you are looking at something and you have to make a decision, do you ever put the pencil or the pen in your mouth? <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't well, ever do that. Do. <laughs> well, I know you're not supposed to do it, but I mean, you're also supposed to wear a mask and lots of people don't do that. I mean, <laughs> I think what the reason that we're doing that is because we want to have the ability to give someone something that's fresh that we know has not been touched by another person. It doesn't matter if it's a mask, a glove, a pencil, 
um, or even an apple. Reusing is always considered to be something you don't want to do. And yes, you can reuse an apple. You take a bite and give it to somebody else. Hmm. All right. Um, I've told people uh, we'll take their questions uh, yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, we'll open up the phone lines. But I just wanted to share with you. So uh, a listener has written in a couple of questions. Her first one is from people <clears throat> that won't vaccinate. I hear that their fear in some cases is that the mRNA vaccines change a person's DNA. But I understand <clears throat> there is only a temporary effect on DNA. Could Jason please explain first how a person's DNA does or does not come into play with mRNA and B, uh, a spinoff company from UBC developed a transport mechanism for Pfizer vaccine to access cells. Could Jason please summarize this process? Yeah. So the fact is, is that the UBC transport mechanism is basically what we have. It's called um, uh, the nanoparticles that are made from lipids. Uh, Peter Cullis, who is a guest on my show, can explain all of that for you. So Google that. Now, in terms of what happens when the mRNA vaccine comes into your body, it attaches to a cell and then the mRNA goes into the cell. And what happens is it asks permission to make the spike protein. And when it does get that permission and doesn't always get permission, then it's going to make the spike protein, which is going to end up on the outside of that cell for the immune system to recognize. Now, the reason that this is important is because if you remember grade eight biology, where is the DNA? It is inside the nucleus. Right. The mRNA vaccine does not go inside the nucleus. So therefore, not only does it have nothing to do with your DNA, it actually is designed to make sure that there is no interference whatsoever. So for anybody who thinks that the mRNA vaccines are somehow going to be making a change to your DNA, just tell them to go back and read the grade eight uh, biology textbooks. <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing a lot of people aren't going to remember all of their grade eight biology. Why uh, not? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I remember dissecting the pig, but I can't remember if that was grade eight <laughs> or not. But I do have a very strong memory of that. My guest is Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show. We invited Jason on the program today to talk about the announcement that starting Monday, all students in BC schools will be required to wear a mask while inside school buildings. That's when they're at their desks, on buses as well. They can take them off, obviously, when eating. Talking about that, but also if you have a question in general about COVID-19 that you would like to bring, Jason, please do start 9898 and 604-280-9898. Let's go to Dave in White Rock. Good afternoon. Yes, Jill, I'd like to ask Jason about the Johnson Johnson single shot and the difference mm-hmm. between their viral vector and the mRNA of uh, Moderna and Pfizer. Yeah, so Johnson & Johnson actually uses what is known as an adenovirus. And so the adenovirus is a common cold virus that doesn't affect us as humans. And so that goes in. Now, in this particular case, the Johnson & Johnson will actually go into your cell and it will go into the nucleus. That's, what, that's one of the differences between AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson away from Pfizer and Moderna. When it's in the nucleus, it doesn't do anything to your DNA. It just needs the nuclear proteins to be able to produce the spike protein. And then it goes through the same process as the mRNA. So this, the effect is the same, but the process is a little bit more complicated. And that's one of the reasons why the effectiveness of the Johnson & Johnson as well as the AstraZeneca is lower than that of Pfizer and Moderna. And for those of you who are wondering why we don't have any more Johnson & Johnson in the country, just remember a few months ago, we decided to give all of that away to the COVAX. Right. All right. Because I think you can not You can still get it or there are still offering it in the United States. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. you can go down to the States and get it uh, because it's still approved there. 
But just remember one thing. Uh, you know how we talk about uh, Pfizer and Moderna being about 88 to 92 percent effective against uh, the Delta? Uh, Johnson & Johnson, I believe, is only about 65 percent. Okay, that is good to know. Let's uh, go now to Benny. Benny is on the line from Abbotsford. Go ahead. Yes, uh, I'm double vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine since June 15th. I have a strong immune system. I'm 77. Now the doctors are recommending that you take a flu shot now. Now, I have not had the flu since 1968, and I've never, ever wanted to put a flu shot into my body. So what's your recommendation now with people that have been vaccinated, whether they should take that flu shot or will there be any reaction? That's my concern. Yeah, no, there should not be any reaction. Um, And the reason that we always want people to get a flu shot is because the flu does change every year. And we are expecting a fairly bad pandemic, H1N1, 2009 pandemic, mind you, year ahead of us. So if you can get yourself vaccinated so that you have that ability, and honestly, if you haven't had the flu since the old pandemic of 68, congratulations, sir. Um, I still recommend that you may want to talk with your doctor about getting that vaccine. All right, Benny, thanks uh, for that phone call. Appreciate that. My guest is Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show. He is uh, has agreed to stay on and take questions. So if you have a question about the mask mandate or anything really about COVID-19, star 9898 and 604-280-9898. Uh, Ken in Langley, do you have a question for Jason? Yes, Jason, great hearing from you. Thanks, Jill. Um, yes, about uh, the masking mandate. Now, Mm-hmm. This is kind of off the fringe, but it's not really. It's a big issue. It involves tens of thousands of people that could be a pool for spread. Hopefully not. I live in a condo. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I know last time the orders were under an emergency order. We had masking required all over the building in the mm-hmm. gym. We have a gym there. We have elevators, two people in the elevator with masks. But now it's absolutely zero. We've uh, There's other people I found out who have... Uh, 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 made complaints to our strata. We don't hear a damn thing back from our agents. I hear some other place in the NIMO had kind of that issue. People are wondering, mm-hmm. I talked to people, what the hell is going on here with no masks? And they're not answering our our complaints and concerns. It's just, it's just leaving our strata to show us that they're basically just irresponsible because I read in the website, government website, there's a part for strata owners and and responsibilities and owner owners all right Ken, what's your uh, question they're they're supposed to they're allowed to they're supposed to follow close as they can responsibly for Mm -hmm. doing that type of thing and why they're not that's a big pool that's being left out of kind of a dangerous situation there's kids families under vaccinated this this is crazy Well, residential neighborhoods um, are always going to be uh, in a gray area, and that includes condos, because when you think about it, a condo is a residential area. Um, You can't really tell someone to wear a mask once they've gone into their residence, okay? You can, however, tell them to wear a mask when they happen to be in uh, the hallways. The problem is, is that it has to be regulated by the municipality. And if the Vancouver municipality has taken off any of the indoor masking, then it's going to be very difficult for you to do even call a bylaw officer. Um, You know what? 
I do what I do. I protect myself. When I'm around these environments, when I'm going out, I keep a mask on myself. And uh, that way, at least I know I'm safe. And sometimes you just can't save them all. Sorry. All right. Let's go to Lori in Vancouver. Lori, what's your question? Yes, good afternoon. Uh, I just wanted to ask you and the doctor. Um, I've been double vaccinated with the AstraZeneca. However, I have um, underlying issues in regards to heart problems, uh, lung problems. Uh, mm-hmm. And anyways, yeah. I just wondered how to get a third booster shot. Mm-hmm. Or if I'm even eligible to get one. Oh, you probably would be very eligible to get one. Um, what I would do is I would talk to one of your specialists uh, or just to your GP and say, I would very much like to get a third shot. What is the recommendation based on um, all the conditions I currently have? This is a conversation that you really need to be having with your healthcare provider because I know what the uh, what all the different organizations are saying but that doesn't necessarily mean that's personalized for you. Only a GP um, or one of your specialists will be able to help you out. And, and, and I really do hope that you talk to them and that um, you can find out how to get that third shot. All right, Laurie, thanks for that. Uh, Mike in Vancouver, we have one minute if you have a very quick question. Well, I did have two, but I'll give you one. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, thank you, Jill. And uh, yeah, if, you know the masks that people are wearing now? There used to be the cloth mask and the disposable blue mask. What is the best uh-huh. mask to wear now and why? Any. I'm sorry. Uh, Because whether you're using a surgical mask the wrong way because you're not fit tested or whether you're wearing a cloth mask anyway, you're going to have that 95% uh, protection. And that's basically what you need. So it really doesn't matter. Um, Just make sure, like I said, that's got two layers. Three is always better. And you're going to be good to go. All right, Jason, as always, thank you so much. Uh, Apologies (laughs) if we didn't get to everybody on the phone lines, but thanks so much for your time. They end up emailing me anyways. Take care. (laughs) All right. That is Jason Tetro. You heard him right there. Feel free to email your question. He is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Always great to have him on this program answering all those questions. Just a little bit. We're going to talk about digital equity. And my next guest has written a piece about this saying it should be a basic human right for all ages. Dan Levitt is joining us now. Dan, great to have you back on the program. Great to be here, Jill. A slightly different title this time. I know you've changed careers a little bit or jobs a little bit. You're now the CEO of Kin Village in Tawasin, so congratulations on that. Thank you, Jill. Uh, You've written about this, and I think this is something that became very evident, especially during the pandemic and when people found themselves cut off and isolated. But can you talk a little bit about when you say that digital equity should be a basic human right for all ages? What are you talking about? Well, if we think about access to technology, specifically the internet and Wi-Fi, and if we consider that just as important as the right to water, to heat, to electricity, uh, digital access, digital equity means that we should be viewing this as a public utility. And when we exclude people from that digital economy, that that the internet, um, the Wi-Fi, and having the use of computers and communication, uh, we actually then cut off people from accessing um, the world around them. So it might be because of physicality, it might be because of financial issues, but they might have skills or confidence issues or even motivation to be connected. But if we can make sure that all people have the same access to digitization, to the computers, to the internet, I think we would 
basically provide a better society for all people, which would be um, a big improvement. And do you see it then, especially with people in an older age group, that it is that the isolation is there in that if they're not digitally digitally connected, I would imagine it's not only having access, say, to the internet, but also having access to the equipment and knowing how to use the equipment. Well, exactly. And what we've seen is um, that's a barrier itself. And uh, uh, those of us perhaps who weren't born with technology, uh, we're learning as we go and we're trying to catch up and keep up to date. And that's a huge challenge. So having um, as much help as possible, um, it could be from somebody younger, it could be from somebody older um, or someone from the same age uh, generation as you, but making sure uh, that you can use technology. And sometimes we do need um, a lot of it um, basically pre-programmed and set up just like we do for other technology. Um, When you get a car, you would go into a car and you'd basically turn it on and it goes. Um, So we need the same kind of access uh, for um, digital technology so we all can stay connected. What do you think would be the first step then? How would we even start getting to the place of digital equity? Well, I think one of the things that we can do um, ourselves is uh, look at those older people in our communities. It might be our parents. It could be your neighbor. um, It could be somebody that you know in your community. And just connecting with them, it could be even informal. It could be something um, as um, subtle as um, inviting them for a video chat or inviting them to connect with you that way. It could be um, introducing them to some kind of technology um, that might help them age in place, like sensors or wearables that would help them not only be monitored um, if they need that assistance to age in place, but also something that would help them be more independent. Uh, we can communicate um, with them using smartphones or social media, and not just Facebook, but other um, social media that are more targeted to younger people. And we could also do things like sharing um, musical um, um, playlists if we have common uh, musical interests. And uh, I think any time we can introduce older people to the latest emerging technologies, I think that's a, a great step forward. Uh, you write in the piece, one of the lines cites the United Nations Global Report on Ageism, saying that half the world's population is ageist. What do you mean by that? Well, so basically, if you think about ageism, um, ageism is basically um, the fear of growing older, the fear of old, of old people. Um, some people even use the term gerontophobia. And so we're basically stigmatizing um, older people in the same way we might do with sexism or with um, racism. In this case, we're targeting a, a population. And it did start, it was coined uh, decades ago um, in just outside of Washington, D.C., in Chevy Chase, Maryland, where there was a seniors housing complex that was um, going to be built. And the people in the area, we call it NIMBYism, they didn't want seniors living next to them. So that's where this term ageism came up. And we've seen it um, in um, um, obvious ways, and we've seen it more in subtle ways. And so if you think about the way that Um, people of older age are portrayed. Um, Sometimes it's um, not in the most positive light, and there's those uh, stereotypes um, that we see, um, and even things like magazines. Next time you're at the checkout counter in the grocery store, you see those magazines while you're waiting in line. Um, There'll be one that says, um, here, do this, and you'll uh, look 10 years younger. So that, that those kinds of things are discriminatory, um, but we're, we're doing there's great advances. Um, a year ago or so, we saw on the cover of British Vogue magazine, which used to have Kate Moss on the cover, uh, we saw Judy Dench. 
um, who um, is 85. So we're seeing some positivity around the representation of, of seniors. So I think we have to reconsider um, how we think about old age. Uh, which is a, a really interesting point. Do you think it's, is it easier as far as connection, if we're talking about a place like Kin Village or a more group setting, is it easier in, in that scenario then to realize there, there might be a problem with digital equity or, or with digital uh, making sure that people do have access to that? So then at least you've, you've got residents and you can make sure you tackle that problem. Is it more difficult then, though, as far as people that are older living at home, uh, maybe don't have family support, there, there's nobody that's even going to recognize that or come up with a way to fix it? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right, Jill. So that's, that's the greatest problem is that if you don't have somebody in your immediate family or your neighbor who can support you, then how do you reach out? How do you even know that there are services out there? Um, we're lucky in Canada. We have a few organizations that are doing this. Um, one is called Connected Canada, where they, they connect older adults with technology, training, support. Um, locally, United Way Healthy Aging has launched a digital learning project to increase digital uh, literacy amongst older people in British Columbia. And that is fantastic, but we need to see that across the board so that everybody can can access um, technology. It's not just people who are well-resourced, but people who have various levels of income and various levels to the internet so that it becomes that utility that we all can make available to all of us so we can all communicate and have access to information, um, health information, for example, that would help us um, with, with different aspects of our lives. The pandemic showed us a lot of gaps in healthcare, in particular in long-term care and a lot of places where there was room for improvement. So do you think this is something as well? The pandemic has showed us this gap or this lack of, of information and this lack of connectivity and we can fix it? Absolutely. I think just by making that technology available, uh, we all have a role to play in this. It might be helping people who are older become um, connected with an app or social media so they can expand their networks as we've seen younger people do. Because we've been able to, younger people have been able to uh, go out there for able-bodied and to join walking clubs or biking clubs, running, uh, doing other um, activities. But older people might not have been able to do that so much. So if we can make sure that um, those, those community centers that they might not have been able to access, they can do it virtually. It's so important. At Kin Village, we're very lucky to have a community centre and we're just opening it up now. Um, it is um, National Seniors Day, so it's been a great time to, uh, to celebrate and uh, we're starting to get our fitness programs. I, I met today um, a, uh, a daughter and a mother. The daughter is 74, uh, the mother is 97, and they both do Pilates um, in a program at Kin Village together. So it's great to see that, but I think um, having the uh, digital connection, that digital equity would help people who can't necessarily get out to programs and services in the community. Did you see people learning as well when it became the only way to visit or to have that connection with family members? We did see in some cases iPads being brought in or or ways for people to connect. Did that at least help as well uh, get people familiar with the technology and more connected? Yeah, certainly it did. So you had um, those, the often the daughters of someone in care who was connecting uh, virtually with their parent, and that was wonderful to see. And um, I guess the the perhaps downside is that it required a staff member to make it available um, to the senior who was living in care. And the technology we'd love to see, which is really on the fringes, but I think it's going to become more um, standard, is that um, just as you know, the senior might be in their 
room and they're often were um, alone and for um, days or weeks at a time will eventually see that the, an incoming call will come onto the screen and you could see it's Jill calling and then they could say, yes, um, I want to speak to Jill or no, no, I don't want to take the call right now. So we need that non-touch, um, some, something easy so that the senior could access it um, and not have the barriers of having somebody else have to assist them with the technology. That would, it would just be part of their life and help them with independence. Well, it's such an interesting topic and timely, and hopefully there will be more done on this. We'll leave it there for today. But Dan, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about it. Thanks, Jill. Anytime. Well, researchers from the UBC Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries have done some research and some complex modeling, and it shows that extremely hot years will very likely wipe out hundreds of thousands of tons of fish that would otherwise be available for catch in the country's waters in this century. So not talking about centuries into the future. And this is in addition to the projected decreases in fish stocks that also being linked to climate change. Let's bring in Dr. William Chung, Professor and Director of UBC's Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries, also lead author of this report. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for speaking with me. Good afternoon. It sounds absolutely dire and uh, that awful things are going to be happening to the fish stocks. What exactly does the modeling tell us? Yeah, the modeling tells us that uh, we are not only... um, uh, seeing a future where uh, fish stocks will be affected by these uh, long-term changes, uh, mean, uh, slow changes, uh, long-term mean changes of the ocean conditions uh, such as warming. But then uh, also we are challenged by the extreme events. Uh, and in this case, uh, we look at uh, the extreme uh, high temperature events that act on top of the long-term climate change. And that would really add substantial impacts uh, on our fish stocks, on our fisheries, and the people who are dependent on the fisheries as well. Were you surprised by the numbers showing that it could be that uh, that amount of, of fish that, that could be gone? Yes, uh, it's, 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 uh, it really um, uh, are quite worrying for some of the uh, sensitive fish stocks and fisheries. So the impact is not uh, uniform across fish stocks. Uh, some fish stocks are particularly sensitive to temperature, and in our coast, for example, uh, sockeye salmon is, uh, is particularly sensitive to, uh, to warming. And, and we know that the previous years, uh, uh, high temperature can uh, have uh, lots of negative impacts uh, on, on the sockeye salmon, for example. And um, so what it means is that uh, previously uh, in these studies, we project that uh, uh, long-term climate change can already affect, uh, uh, is already affecting and can, will continue to affect uh, sockeye salmon, for example, that would drive uh, a decrease in their uh, abundance and, and potential catches. But then uh, in this particular study that we just published, we also analyzed these high-temperature events that could, uh, extreme events, uh, and that would add uh, almost uh, the same amount of, uh, of impacts uh, by 2050. So basically doubling the impacts of climate change uh, when these um, uh, high temperature extreme events occur. Uh, so we are looking at a model project, for example, uh, uh, instead of just a, a, a uh, instead of a 30% decrease in, in salmon uh, potential catches by uh, by the midst of this century, uh, with uh, the additions of the extreme events, it will actually bump the number up uh, to uh, 50% or more. And would, I know the numbers looked at Pacific Canada, they looked at sockeye salmon in our, in our neck of the woods, but did you also look at other parts of the world, perhaps parts that are already warmer? 
Yes, indeed. Uh, our study looked at uh, uh, thousands of, uh, of uh, fish stocks uh, around the world. Um, and uh, the, what we find is that uh, fish stocks in the countries, um, in the, particularly the tropical area, are particularly sensitive and at risk to these high temperature events. And um, the most uh, impacted uh, uh, regions that we projected include uh, uh, the Indo-Pacific regions, uh, um, the um, uh, also the uh, the Pacific uh, American regions, uh, such as the uh, Latin, Central Latin America, like uh, Ecuador. And those regions are already uh, hot uh, because they are in tropical areas, and with the additions of high temperature events, uh, they would exacerbate uh, the uh, the impacts from um, the continuous uh, warming waters. Uh, and and the thing is. Uh, these countries are also particularly dependent on their fisheries uh, for income, for livelihood, uh, for food. Uh, so these impacts are particularly uh, direct uh, to, 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 to the people uh, that are dependent on, on these fisheries. Uh, so is it all doom and gloom or is there anything that we can do to not make this so bad? Yes, uh, so there are two things uh, that are important. Uh, the first thing uh, is we need to mitigate climate change uh, because uh, uh, with long-term changes in climate change, uh, in the ocean conditions uh, because of climate change, uh, we are stressing the fish stocks more and more. And then when the high temperature extreme events occur, uh, it basically at, uh, exacerbate those impacts. Uh, it is not unlike uh, what uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is doing uh, with uh, with our health healthcare system. If our healthcare system, hospital system, is already overloaded, uh, we add COVID to it, um, then it will basically crash the, uh, our healthcare systems. And this is basically the same for how uh, high temperature events are acting on top of long-term climate change. So what it means is that mitigating climate change is really important now. And then in addition to that, uh, in our study, we also showed that uh, having good fisheries management that are sensitive to uh, changing ocean conditions can also reduce uh, impact. So what it means is that we need to get good data about how fish stocks are changing, how our ocean conditions are changing, and then use it to adjust our fish stocks uh, management accordingly. And that would give uh, our fish stock a better chance to um, to get through uh, these high temperature extreme events and particularly uh, to get also through help to adapt uh, any immediate impacts uh, before uh, we can successfully or effectively mitigate uh, climate change. All right. We will leave it there. Very interesting uh, study and report. Uh, Dr. William Chung, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, I first met Jordan Carberry in 2018. I was working a weekend shift at Global News, and I was assigned to call him up as he was at Vancouver General Hospital, and we had heard that he might be willing to tell his story. He was in the hospital. He just had surgery because he had been mauled by a grizzly bear. He was a park ranger in the Bella Bella area. He saw grizzly bears all the time. He had tons of footage of grizzly bears. And one of the main reasons he wanted to tell his story was he wanted to make it very clear that it wasn't the bear's fault. Take a listen. This was just part of that story. The branch snapped and it hit the ground and then I caught some movement out of my left eye and looked over to see a sow grizzly bear looking right at me and heading straight for me. Carberry didn't have time to get back inside. He says the bear was on him in seconds. The bear had my head in its mouth and was picking me up. 
Um, I guess my scalp tore and it dropped me. I kicked her in the face three times at least. Uh, was able to push up and stand and then I tried to hit her in the face on the snout and she was like a prize boxer. She was so fast, she was just like Carberry says he just completed ranger training for fighting off attackers, which helped. He managed to get away, but was hurt. I've got a portion of my ear missing. Uh, there's a bit of a gash near my eye, so she just missed my eyeball. I've got a big tear and a puncture mark in my chest. I've got an abdomen, uh, scars where she ripped across my belly. Bleeding heavily, he then drove himself to get help. I just kept saying the whole way to the hospital, don't pass out, don't pass out, don't pass out. Well, he didn't pass out. He made it to the hospital, and uh, I think I said Bella Bella. I meant Bella Kula, British Columbia. He made it to the hospital. He was airlifted to VGH. That's where he had surgery and made a remarkable recovery and went back to his job. He's a biologist, went back to his job as a ranger working in Bella Kula. Well, then... I guess I should back up a little bit. Before that, many years before that, he'd had a brain tumor. And in the year 2000, he underwent about a 14-hour surgery for brain surgery. Also came through that with flying colors. The grizzly bear attack in 2018. Unfortunately, Jordan Carberry has found himself now back in hospital. He had to undergo another brain surgery. And now his daughter has set up a GoFundMe page. And we'll talk about the GoFundMe and where you can help if you would like to help him in just a few moments. But first, Jordan Carberry joins me from Kelowna Hospital, where he is still recovering from that surgery. Jordan, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome, Jill. Thanks for having me. I'll start off by asking, how are you feeling? I'm feeling remarkably well, considering I'm recovering from second open brain surgery. A second. So let's go back in time a little bit. And even before the grizzly bear attack, which happened a few years ago, you actually had open, uh, you had brain surgery in the year 2000. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there? I had hydrocephalus. So I had, that's like water on the brain or fluid on the brain. I had to go to a neurosurgeon in Penticton, and he gave me all the tests, and I passed everything. And then as I was leaving, I said, well, why can't I look up then? And he goes, what? And then I go, yeah, I can't see up. And he goes, follow my finger. And I did, and my eyes would only go three-quarters of the way up, and then they would stop. And right away he said, you've got a vascular tumor. So he called it right from that one symptom. Hmm. And then I had, um, I think it was a, either a 12 or 14 hour open brain surgery in 2000 by Dr. Brian Toyota, who's an amazing man. Just love him. And then following that, I was able to get home to my little organic farm in Coston. And I felt like I really healed quite quickly once I got home there. And so I'm desperate to get out of the hospital this time. But unfortunately, before they'll let me go, they need to do a home inspection. And in our bathroom, there's we have mold growing. And so we have to do this big bathroom rental before I'm able to get home. 
So your daughter has set up the GoFundMe page and it also goes through the details of not only your brain surgery in 2000, uh, fast forward to 2018 when you were working as a park, uh, you were, you're a biologist I know and you were working in uh, Bella Coola uh, as a park ranger. That's around the time when I first met you because that's when you were in Vancouver General Hospital after surviving an extremely vicious, nearly fatal grizzly bear attack. Uh, tell us a bit, though, we'll talk a bit more about the GoFundMe, but that grizzly bear attack is actually connected to what has landed you back in hospital now. It is, because during that time when I was in the hospital at VGH for the grizzly bear attack, they had done an MRI and noticed that I had hydrocephalus again. So they were investigating why I had hydrocephalus whether it was just because I have a VP shunt to drain the excess fluid into my abdomen from my brain. And so they weren't sure whether the the bear had messed that up and that's why I was having hydrocephalus symptoms again or whether there was a tumor from the radiation therapy that I had following the initial surgery. Resulting that bear attack, they did another MRI saw the hydrocephalus, and they discovered that my shunt was no longer working. So at this last operation that I had down in Vancouver, they replaced the shunt as far as I know, although I'll have to check with the neurosurgeon to make sure, but that's what my understanding is. So is it... And they're also able to remove 95% of the vascular tumor, which they thought was a different type of tumor from the radiation, but it turns out it was not. Is a blessing. Yeah. Speaking of blessings, I feel like people have been saying I I have a guardian angel, and I do, and I think his name is Jesus, because I don't see how I could have gotten through all this without higher help. Is it safe to say then the the bear attack that you survived, and I still remember seeing your injuries, and and they were very serious. But w- that attack then, if that attack hadn't happened, would it have been a scenario where you wouldn't have had that MRI, and there's a good chance doctors wouldn't have caught uh, that something uh, in your brain was messed up again. That's true. Although I was paying attention to some symptoms that I was having in terms of headaches and whatnot again which I had been through before, and it turned out to be the tumor. So I was pretty sensitive to it. So I'm not saying that the bear saved me necessarily, but certainly played a role in in getting it found out. Uh, You mentioned that you want to get home. I think anybody who spends any time in hospital wants to get out of hospital and get home, uh, especially if, like you, it's been a month that you've been recuperating and recovering. Uh, That's why this GoFundMe has been set up by your daughter in that so many people I know have come out, have supported you, have been so inspired by your strength, have been encouraging you have been been hoping that you make a full recovery uh, how much do you need or what what are you asking for for help as far as what you need to renovate the bathroom to get rid of the mold to get your house into a, a in into a state where you can return home well we're getting another quote today i think so we're just at they've just given us an estimate at this stage to do the mold removal and all that is going to be at least five grand. And then to rebuild the wall and put in a accessible shower instead of the tub will be another probably five grand, they're saying. 
And then depending on how far the mold goes underneath the crawl space, it may be a little bit more than that. So that's why we're asking for 15000 to cover all those costs and get the, the work done ASAP so that I can actually go home and heal or finish the healing process because I'm not sleeping at all. Like I haven't slept more than a couple hours for probably the whole month, even though they have me on sleeping meds. Mm. But I'm just unable to sleep for some reason. And I actually suspect it's because of the brain surgery. They must have messed with my sleep center or something because I'm just basically an insomniac now. Jill, I just want to say that I owe so much to the professional healthcare staff that I have, the physiotherapists, the occupational therapists, the nurses, the doctors, everybody's been fantastic. I've got a great team around me. It sounds, it sounds like you absolutely do. And my guess is that that great team, they're also cheering you on and hoping that you get home as soon as possible as well. I believe that to be true. The GoFundMe page, again, set up by your daughter, Jasmine. People can find it at the GoFundMe website, and it explains in great detail what you've gone through, the challenges that you've overcome, that I'm sure you will make a full recovery, just based on the very little I know and the the couple of times I've interacted with you. Jordan, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for taking this time today and sharing your story and, and talking with us, and all the best. We hope to talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Jill. It was a pleasure meeting you the first time, and it was a pleasure speaking with you today. That was Jordan Carberry speaking from the Kelowna General Hospital. That's where he is still recuperating from a second brain surgery. And again, this follows a grizzly bear mauling that he was lucky to survive. Well, I'm not sure if luck had that to do with it. I'm not sure how many people could drive themselves to a hospital bleeding profusely and having survived a grizzly bear attack. He did make the point that the reason he talked about that back in 2018, too, is he wanted to make sure... Nobody blamed the bear. He walked out, didn't realize there were cubs, and it was a mama bear protecting her cubs. So great, uh, just a, a great outcome to that. Hoping for a similar outcome to this. Now, if you want to check out the GoFundMe page, this was the page that was put up by his daughter, Jasmine. You can check it out at GoFundMe.com, and it is Jordan's Journey to Recovery. If you type in Jordan's Journey to Recovery, you will see it. Their goal is $15,000. So far, they've raised almost $3,000, and the whole story is there as well, and a lot of people wishing him well and leaving some comments there as well, hoping for a full recovery. Again, that's Jordan's Journey to Recovery, and you can find that on GoFundMe.com. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.